Welcome to another episode of the NPCs Discuss, where we talk about the video game industry, events, history, controversies, and more. On today's episode, remember when you bought a PC game in the 90s, and to fully install the game, you needed to input a 16-character code? Ah, be in a time like that again. However, in our effort to access games faster, developers did away with prepackaged codes and either made it so the access was embedded into the disk, was a part of the computer or console, or stood up a server that the game needed to talk with. As fears of digital piracy continued to grow with internet access expanding and evolving, developers and publishers needed to come up with a better way to protect their IP. But steps to protect that which they hold dear comes at the expense of downtime, performance issues, and more for the end user, the gamer. What has happened with DRM since the CD keys of yore, and what could we be seeing more of going into the future? That's what we're here to focus on today, the grasp of DRM. My name is Travis Sherman, and as always, I am joined by Kyle Inman. Kyle, hello. What's up? I don't know. I had to pay a lot of money to bypass this DRM here to be able to talk with you, so uh, <laughs> I guess let's let's make it worth our while. Right? No doubt. Um, so DRM, Digital Rights Management, of course, um, has been a bane since the uh, early 90s when we, like you said, had to put in the, the CDKs, but um, hasn't really been much of a like major issue. I mean, early on, a lot of people, if they wanted to bypass those, it was a little bit of a hassle and somewhat illegal, of course, but they would find key gens or uh, get uh, keys that were either available through online resources, if you had to go to the library to use their the library computer. Uh, but then we went into an age where uh, DRM had to be handled by the servers, and then all of a sudden, SimCity can't be accessed on day one. What's going on? Don't forget about the games that have since retired, or at least games that are no longer being supported that should still technically be playable, but the servers that they would authenticate to for DRM purposes no longer exist. Right. And that's a big problem, especially. Right. And, I, I mean, of course, the most recent thing that, that has happened out of the, the whole DRM mishap, of course, being the uh, Microsoft servers going uh, down to check the DRM, so you weren't able to even access games in an offline state in in a lot of instances. Uh, because your Xbox wasn't able to communicate, or even your PC wasn't able to authenticate with that server. Um, Sony had a server-wide one just recently, as well as specific to Gran Turismo, which is, you know, brand new game, and we had all the controversy with the... Uh, um, the, uh, the, the microtransactions being added uh, days after... Literally, it was uh, reviewed and, yeah, just mess. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's not to say that all DRM is inherently evil. I mean, obviously, there needs to be some sort of protection. I mean, we live in a, a capitalist society where there is IP out there, and obviously, the people who create said IP want to be able to protect that, so... They can keep making money. I mean, that's that's just capitalism right there in and of itself. But the implementation of different types of DRM that focus specifically on non-local 
authentication or authorization or what have you, you know, the, the checks and balances aren't happening locally. But the introduction of that, that has caused more harm than it has good in the grand scheme of what we've seen in gaming over the last decade and a half, really. Because, I mean, up at least until that point, online gaming really, you know, there was a lot of it, but not necessarily as much as there is now. But then you also take a look still even at that point in time, a decade and a half ago, you know, we'll just say it easily here, you know, 15 years ago, we were still putting CDs into our computers or DVDs at that point and still putting in authorization keys um, or it was embedded into the disc itself. And you just have to pop it in, install it, and the disc had to be in there for it to authenticate. Yeah, I mean, a decade and a half ago, online gaming, you were probably... I, if you were online gaming, playing either EverQuest or you were playing a first-person shooter like Unreal Tournament or uh, Team Fortress Classic going that far back or early Counter-Strike 1.6. So, Yeah, and that's, you know, that's an interesting thing, especially talking about some of the classic stuff. So let's kind of, I guess, circle back here, like, Let's talk about some of the past on the DRM. And I think really the easiest things mm-hmm. so far have been, you know, first and foremost, we go back to like the the early days of gaming anyway, where not everybody had a computer and there really wasn't technology out there to reverse engineer cartridges. There wasn't a way right. within the household or, you know, they didn't there was not an Amazon, there was not a shop, there was not a a storefront that you can go and buy the things necessary to be able to rip uh, the actual digital files, the ROMs off of cartridges that Mm -hmm. really didn't start to take effect or take focus until we started really getting into the late nineties, early two thousands, as we started to see uh, development and effort in emulation. So a lot of it was just DRM just for the sake of that people couldn't do anything to reverse engineer them. You know, if there, if there is something like that, that exists in history, you know, please correct me. And of course our audience will correct me and send me hate mail if I'm absolutely wrong, but that's okay. That's how we learn and grow. Even with that though, um, you know, we started to see the advent of a different medium of content becoming available. And that happened to be games on CDs and not just for, PC, but for consoles, like with the PlayStation, for example, or I'm trying to think of another one of the discs. Like, wasn't there like the Philips CDI? Is that the right name? Yeah. 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 So CDI, obviously the name is, it's right there in the name itself, CD. Uh, But they themselves had that embedded into the disc, just like we talked about there, that you have to have the disc in to be able to play the game. There was no offsite storage for it. There wasn't anything there, but even with that stuff embedded into the disk, there was still ways to pull the data off of the disk by just throwing it right into your computer at that point in time, if you had the ability to do so. In some method. I in mean, some even, method, yes. Even PlayStation had their security method. If you if you threw in an original PlayStation disk, say, to a PC, it would act as a uh, basically the game soundtrack, essentially. God, I missed um, that. That's such a cool thing. Yeah, I know. It was a really cool feature. Um, but, I mean, uh, on the other hand, there there were there were certain security features as they went further in, in advancement, you know, with the PlayStation 2, where they would actually imprint inside the uh, internal ring. Yeah. So it was like inside the data layer where the it, technically it's the end of the data layer, uh, they would imprint code there. 
Exactly. Yeah, and uh, Microsoft did the same thing too. There was there was some of it that was built into mm-hmm. the disc, I think, for the original Xbox. But the Xbox 360 had a whole fundamental shift. I think like a quarter or a third of the way through its life cycle. It was before the Xbox One was announced, and they had changed the way that that they embedded the DRM into the disc that required a full software update of. Uh, of the console to actually be able to recognize it. And I remember because I was a part of that beta to test out that DRM. They sent me a disc for Halo Reach to to use for this test. And mm-hmm. it was it was early like Xbox Insider program. So they sent me this disc and it was like a nondescript, like if you printed off a label for a CD and slapped it across the top of one, that's literally what it looked like. Someone using word art to write Halo right. Reach, you know, for testing. Um, with that disc though, it only worked for so long as a part of testing out the actual DRM functionality, the actual changes that they made into it. Then a software update came out and every other game subsequently going forward had to have that on there. They had some of the reverse, uh, they had the the backwards compatibility. I almost said reverse engineering, but they had the backwards compatibility still in there. So games that hadn't shipped with it could still run, but there were mm-hmm. still some additional checks that were being performed. However, a fundamental shift in how the DRM was being encoded and handled in a console only a quarter of its way into a lifetime obviously like made some people think that hey we need to find a different way to handle this DRM because we had to make this big shift big big like change in thought on how we actually build this and it's very possible i mean just kind of thinking about it and spitballing it that's kind of how we got maybe to where we're at today I mean, would you agree with that, or is there some other stuff that's been going on that maybe contributes? I mean, in part, I I, I feel like a lot of the uh, what what's evolved to be the uh, almost always on DRM, uh, where you're having to communicate to a server, and you you know you're constantly making that call out, and you know certain. Certain platforms don't necessarily require that all the time. Like Steam only does it every 30 days, I want to say, for, for at least most, if not all, of their games. Um, but when when you run into this always-on DRM scenario, that that's when you start to have the issues um, where, you know, if if the server goes down, you know, what what then? Um, how do you authenticate? How do you play? Um, I don't know. It it kind of makes you just like think a little bit, though. I mean, as you're going on, though, is it's kind of like trying yeah. to make you think, though, especially because as we talk about in all of our discuss episodes, though, is we we talk about kind of the history and kind of how things got to be where they're at. And that's why I was really looking at that fundamental shift for the Xbox 360 uh, as it related to that change in how they embedded DRM in the disc yeah. and how they made that that shift in such a very short amount of time into the lifespan of the console. Well, and it, you know, it, it as the uh, console lifespan was ending too, it became easier to replicate the actual DRM that was on the 360 discs, and they were moving into a generation where they thought that everything was going to be burned onto the disc. You know, the only way to authenticate it was that you're going to check to see if it was real and then they were going to make it yours forever. Oh yeah. Yeah. So as you talk as we talk about history here about that, yeah. And really, I mean, 
you think for DRM stuff, of course, you think that Microsoft in all of their years of what they've been doing, that they would have had a better handle on this. But even as we go through time and that, they still seem to not grasp the full impact of some of those decisions that they make. So let's kind of talk about some of that for maybe some people who kind of forgot about that with what the plans were as it related to the Xbox One. And then we can maybe talk about some of the um, uh, PlayStation stuff as well, too. But kind of talk about that, Kyle. Like, what was it? What was their goal with the Xbox One when it was first announced outside of the, the media capabilities? So, of course, you know, the the media capabilities was where they they were trying to hit on when they walked on stage. Um, they initially announced, oh, you know, it, you can pass your cable box through it. You You can do all these other things with it. And by the way, did we mention it could play games? So it, it's kind of like, are are you doing this as a as not the main focus of a gaming console anymore? But as they announced that, you know, the gaming was almost like a subset area. It they they said that uh, when you purchase physical copies of games, in order to authenticate the game, it was going to have to be an online all the time experience and once the the game was first placed into the console it was basically going to burn your information on the disc making the the disc um not ever able to be traded in or or traded to a friend or even let a friend borrow the disc for that matter it was tied to your console and your console alone and there were there was also the potential controversy of well you know was it to that specific console is it to your to your gamer tag how do they work that out you know yeah and and to be honest i don't really think they've actually worked it out yet still anyway but it's definitely interesting just to think about what they were attempting to at least do to put more ownership into it yeah and it's ironic at that at that time at gamestop we were talking about the the possibility of you know, oh well, are we just not gonna do Xbox games? Are you know, are you gonna be having to to carry two different types of Xbox games? Ones that are are gonna be you know potentially able to be traded in. Are we gonna have stuff in store that's gonna take that DRM off? Um, how do we authenticate games ourselves at that point? Like, what what do we do? You know? Yeah, and that's that's one of those things too because even. Sony with the uh, PlayStation 4 really made light of it because they even came out with a, uh, what was it? I I think it was just an online ad. I don't think they actually put it up on TV, but it's like, this is how you trade games with the PlayStation 4. And they just had two of them standing there and one handed the the box with the game in it to the other person. And that was it. You know, poking. I don't even remember if it was later that afternoon or the following day that they did that conference, but yeah, they, they made a show of it intentionally. True. It was pretty quick that they responded back to it just to show off the, the, um, you know, that it's like, this is it. Like we don't need to provide any crazy levels of complexity to be able to make that happen. But obviously, what Microsoft was trying to do anyway at that point in time is that they already kind of saw what was going to be occurring anyway with kind of getting ahead of the game with being online all the time, even though, you know, we were really still kind of about half a generation behind before there was a lot more emphasis on it, especially with things like running in standby mode on the console where you could 
push games to it and it just you know we can do it without you having to be at home boots up faster that type of thing especially when it comes to, like taking down updates too so you don't have to sit there and wait for an update to download yes and no i kind of felt like um it happened a little bit silently during the generation that it we it occurred to us anyway and we didn't even know it like by the end of the xbox generation you were pretty much connected all the time anyway I guess that's true, especially as more and more services began to get incorporated into a gaming console. It wasn't just well, for playing games anymore or, or, you know, throwing a DVD into, but it was the rest of the media consumption. Like the Xbox 360 brought in a lot of that, especially with uh, being the first console to add Netflix and the, you know, I mean, just having the built in DVD player anyway, too. But that was the same for a bunch of the other consoles anyway. And beyond that, how many games anymore are requiring day one patches that are, you know, 13.3 gigs that are required to play before the disc will even run? Like, you can install it, but it's not going to run. You can load up the title menu, but you're not going to get past that. Oh, absolutely. I I mean, that just or seems to be... Or even Switch games that you have to download most of the content. True. True, and you know? I mean that's yeah, that's kind of really where that, it's that's a that's a whole other you know thing in and of itself. But yeah, is it though? I mean, it really does kind of tie into it as well that you know a lot of the effort has been lately to install content to the actual gaming device in question while still having that physical entity connected up to or, or install or installed connected to placed in like the disc drive or the cartridge slot because i installed I massive like true. well i installed mass effect legendary edition on my series x but mm-hmm. for me to play it i still have to have the disc in i can't just have it installed there and pull the disc out that's been the same since they really allowed the uh, game installs to happen back like with the xbox one well, and, you know, a lot of that with consoles anymore, you know, with the game installs, a lot of times you're not even using the disc like old PCs used to use the disc to constantly read data off of the, the disc in, in order to play the game. Anymore, the disc is only in there for the DRM just to ensure that you actually own a full copy of the game. Yeah, and again, that comes back to the DRM part because it was the same way as it was back with PC games too, is that you may not have had to put a key in, but your key was literally the physical disk to say, okay, I've installed it. Now it's just there to, you know, it's there to make sure that you can actually load up the game, that you're authorized to load up the game, that you're the one who paid for it and such. Right. Yeah. And and a lot of times back then you did have to, constantly be reading off the drive drive in order to load levels to load segments to load videos now a lot of that stuff when you load the game into a portion you're gonna play for an hour and a half before you actually have to technically load stuff you know there are times that 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 occurs in games and it's not uncommon yeah and that's just unfortunately i think in our always connected world that just ends up being that unfortunate circumstance yeah. of wanting things faster but it also means that we you, you don't necessarily need the disc all the time or you know the the physical media all the time there to to sustain gameplay you know the gameplay is running off of what contents on the drive so literally it's just there to make sure you own it 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I started looking up DRM as it relates to the PlayStation and at least like going back in um, kind of going back in time, really looking more like PlayStation three and up because mm-hmm. back like during the original Xbox days and the PlayStation two days, I remember seeing ads for mod chips or talks about mod chips where you could crack open the case and if you solder in this chip in the right spot with some jumper wires, you could bypass the DRM and either install your own like OS of some type. You can install a, mm-hmm. a hacked OS that let you do more. Um, it was the same, of course, I know on, on both sides. There was Sony uh, and Microsoft. But didn't hear a lot about it, especially on the Nintendo side. And it really seems as though like maybe Sony had a lot more of the DRM stuff down, but it seemed more like they were following just the industry as a whole, especially, I mean, up until at least the Gran Turismo issue, because looking at this most recent issue that Xbox had with their outage, um, Mm -hmm. there was a, there's a Twitter handle called does it play? And they're a Twitter, uh, they're a, uh, a person or a group there on Twitter who goes and tests connectivity on games to show, um, how it plays based on like online connectivity and such. And they go and say, correction needed. This is an Xbox issue. Activision has DRM check-in or uh, on a offline single-player game outside of Xbox. Meanwhile, a majority portion of Xbox titles have DRM check-in. They absolutely do not have them on PlayStation or uh, SW, which I think is Steamworks. Trust us, we've tested them. So they found equivalent versions of these titles to compare against between them and found that one would work while the other wouldn't. So it's not a publisher thing. It's an Xbox thing. But I wanted to make mention at least of that as we kind of talk about PlayStation because their DRM stuff, they've seemed to be able to handle to a point, right? Right. For the most part, I mean, we did have the issue, of course, recently with a lot of uh, older titles that uh, for whatever reason, the DRM uh, came up because the... uh, there just needed to be an update of the uh, the expiration date, basically. It hit the final date, and it reverted to uh, a day one date. That's right. It, it reset it to the, what is it, the Unix Epoch, which is like 1970 yeah, they, or something? Yeah. Uh, ni- uh, what is it? Uh, December 31st. Uh, y- yeah. 1969 um is what i think is what it set it at okay yeah it's it's in some instances yeah uh january 1st 1970 but yeah it it was something weird like that and it it was all because you know just a mishap of people or of the people not updating the the licensing for the drm so when it called back it said okay yeah it's still able to be played by anyone that owns the license yeah i mean that's that's very true um but it seems like they still like even with still having the license in that i mean you're still impacted by the drm because this weird reset bug occurs you know this weird problem occurs and that's that's not even going to be really specific to just the PlayStation stuff either. But that is something to be concerned about, especially as we've talked about in previous episodes about like preservation of classic video games too, because 
we talked about what is it? It's the C bomb is what they call it on PlayStation threes mm-hmm. with the CMOS battery. So, you know, that kind of comes in even a DRM as well, that it's like, we're using the system clock to help counter some of that. And if the system clock goes belly up, well, can't play. And all your games go belly up as well. But I mean, to the same effect, you know, server outage caused, uh, the, the DRM on Gran Turismo to kind of wig out in a way. I mean, it, that you had access to all the content, all the uh, races that you installed from the disc if you if you had the physical copy of the game. However, you were only able to play, I, I think it was actually one race, and it was just a, a basically a training race, not with any of your cars that you had purchased. Some of them you may have even spent money on. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, I think specifically, yeah, it was a training race or some sort of like individual quick play race. But yeah, it being knocked out definitely caused a lot of a lot of issues, and it definitely made people realize that there was something there that hadn't even been talked about in the first place. There, there is. Well, and well, I, you like, know that, that's that's a seventy dollar game, right? And like I said earlier, I mean, there is that assumption, of course, though that you know we are always online, and that if our internet goes down, obviously things are not going to be available. Even with that said, though, without something being as black and white, as clear as day here on the documentation for the the game uh, on the case and any of the marketing stuff, you know, it's going to be harder to determine, you know, where some of these things at because some things can sneak in that weren't a part of like the review process, for example. You know, there, there wasn't stuff that was out there that helped make consumers aware of these potential things to be on the lookout for. So I think with that, though, I think I'm going to have us take our break right now. And then when we come back, we can focus on more of the recent things that are going on as it relates to DRM, including the Xbox outage and what that actually means for Microsoft going forward, too, especially for this most recent revelation of a patent they were just issued as well. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. And we're back, everybody. Welcome back again. Of course, we are talking about the grasp of DRM here on this week's Discuss. So where we the left off... The necessary evil. The, oh God, it's, it's, sometimes it feels like an unnecessary <laughs> evil. Though, I mean, yes and no. Yeah, it's not I, even chaotic good. It, it's, part it's, of it kind of killed the Dreamcast. It's chaotic neutral almost is where I would really fit it yeah. into the whole grid um so where we left off though before we went into the break was kind of talking about xbox and the issue they had recently as well as this new patent that came up but we'll get into that in a second because i wanted to focus on something else that relates to drm before we talk about what happened with xbox and what they've got coming up potentially and Mm -hmm. that is um not just drm's impact on connectivity where a server goes down and you can't play the game um, or a whole set of services go down and you can't play the game, uh, you know, or some type of corruption in the DRM that prevents you from playing the game. What I want to talk about is performance impacts based on DRM in games. And as I did my research in this one, Kyle, as I were as I was building up the notes for this episode, what I ended up coming across just doing searches around there is that obviously not all DRM is created equally. 
we've played games for a long time and we've come across all of our different types of, of DRM, different things that pop up. I mean, if you want to consider going back in the old days, like Punk Buster is in one way or another, it is anti-cheat, but it is still DRM. Uh, you've also got, um, you've got easy anti-cheat. You've got Battle Eye. Uh, you've got uh, Steam's built-in uh, DRM as well too. But, the one that always well, comes. And there were some ahead. unique ones that I, I don't even recall what they were, but like uh, Mirror's Edge, uh, it was a Ubisoft kind of one-off anti-cheat, or it, not an- necessarily anti-cheat, but anti-piracy, that even in the first level of the game, you automatically slowed down. You couldn't even make the first jump. Everything would load wow. normally, but yeah. You, you wouldn't be able to do it. And other games have done it too, where you wouldn't be able to progress past a certain point or it just got incredibly difficult. Hmm. Okay. I, kn- I know I've seen some of that too, where you, not only with that, but you can bypass, uh, what is it? Like a good example is Super Mario Odyssey, where mm-hmm. some people who have bypassed the cheat is that all of the uh, the Cappy-like characters that you talk to will actually call you a cheater and and have like a very disgruntled, angry look on their face, and that's all the dialogue you get. You don't actually get the story dialogue or anything. You get this, you get this text included now that basically calls you out on your misdeed of of playing a hacked version of the game. Yeah. So that, there there are interesting ways that they do that they counter some of that piracy stuff, and it is kind of funny to see in some ways, but. You know, I, I mentioned Battle Eye, I mentioned Easy Anti-Cheat, I uh, mentioned, um, uh, you know, I talked about Punk Buster there as being an earlier one. Uh, some other ones here on the list, Origin has their own built-in. Um, we've got Secure ROM as an old one, too. Steamworks, Epic Online Service. But the one, again, that seems to be something that affects performance, not, not just because, not from hacking game or anything, but something that fresh out of the box seems to be the consistent one that affects performance is Denuvo. Denuvo is sold as a, or is a, is a third party option that can be built into a game that does two different things. One, it does act as DRM and two, it also acts as anti-cheat. It's got a couple different layers to it that it's doing. It's not just third party garbage for a game, third party (laughs) garbage. Yes. That's not wrong. It's, it's very, very right that that is. Uh, so part of the thing, though, with Denuvo is that besides it just covering those two spots is the number of problems that Denuvo has actually introduced into the games it's tied in with that we find out, like, A, first off, um, we've got massive performance hits of, like, 30 to 40% in some games, like Resident Evil Village, Doom Eternal, uh, those are just at least a couple I can name. Uh, which, by the way, Kyle, unfortunately, the new upcoming Sonic game, Sonic uh, Frontier, I think, mm-hmm. um, will have Denuvo in it, unfortunately. So oh, awesome. they announced that. A so, game that's supposed to run fast is going to run much, much slower. Got to go <laughs> as fast as that authentication and authorization via DRM will let me. Right. Yeah, at least I think it's Sonic Frontier. They said like new Sonic game, so I don't know if there's another one coming out in between Frontier and or, or between it's now and Frontier. So Frontier. probably. But anyway, but Denuvo was causing those massive performance hits. And after those performance hits were being observed and identified and people were actually able to get around Denuvo, you know, there were a lot of uh 
there were several people actually who hacked around Denuvo and played without it there and saw these massive performance jumps in in the game itself. And it was just amazing to see how much of a a protection layer for the IP could cause such havoc. And I think the Doom Eternal devs there at uh, ID actually went and turned off Denuvo completely or replaced it with something else. I can't remember what they did, though. Do you recall? Yeah, I, I don't recall either. Okay. Unfortunately. Yeah, and, and part of it... Because I know Denuvo actually was affecting Resident Evil the same way, and uh, it, it was only about two or three months ago there was a patch to, to remove uh, Denuvo completely, so it was almost a year after the release of the game. Yeah, it was relatively quick, but even so, it was like... What's funny about Denuvo, even though it's still being used to this day, is that within the first day of Doom Eternal being released, someone had hacked and gotten rid of Denuvo. Like there was a release out there yeah. that was that was Denuvo free and just worked. But this is like, let me read this off well, here really quick, Kyle. I think part of the problem with Doom Eternal, though, um, didn't they actually um, accidentally? If you if yeah, it, it, I believe they accidentally left a uh, exe of a denuvo free version in the install if you uh if you didn't oh yeah so the first yeah a couple weeks or that was in like my that. that was in my head there too because i was trying to remember was it was it doom eternal or was it borderlands 3 that had that but maybe you're right it was doom yeah, eternal was that had doom the eternal, other one yeah yeah and so maybe that's how they just did it maybe that's why it was so quick is because they found that other exe so yeah. I, I was trying to remember why it was so quick. So thank you for that, Kyle. But let me read this here because uh, the PC Gaming Wiki, PCGamingWiki.com here, actually reads off kind of like um, what Denuvo actually is kind of doing behind the scenes here. So they say, a consequence of its use of unique hardware-based code paths, Denuvo Anti-Tamper requires an online connection periodically as the system environment of the operating system changes with new hardware and or Windows updates. While everything that might invalidate the token stored on the storage drive is not fully known, this happens frequently enough for the anti-tamper protection to be described as requiring a periodic online connection every fortnight or so. This is generally not an issue or hindrance for those with an always-present online connection, but can be annoyance for people primarily using roaming data. Players gaming offline for a long period of time can also suffer if proper preparations are not made in advance to assure the uh, uh, validity of the offline token. The lack of transparency on storefronts regarding this process from Denuvo Anti-Tamper is a hindrance for potential purchasers as it means people might not be aware of its presence and periodic online requirement before purchasing a game that, after purchase, the purchaser may find unplayable when an online connection is unavailable. And that goes into the performance part, though, too, is that it requires these updates behind the scenes as your game or as your PC is updated. Simple Windows updates right there are shown that it causes Denuvo to have to go and check out, like, or go and, and check back in to, to revalidate itself. And even in tandem with that, though, it, it's this last sentence here where it talks about um, it talks about the fact that there's no need to list the anti-cheat, the, the anti-tamper. There's no reason to list these on their storefronts you know, until it ends up becoming too late where people have already purchased the game, downloaded it, and it ends up causing this problem. Yeah, but 
I think that's an unfair assumption, especially when there are data limits on on a lot of people. Um, there there are so many states that still you know have not not the greatest internet, or you know they for that matter they do have those data caps on their internet. So in order to have these random periodic call outs when you already are having to spend you know this much time downloading and or patching a game and then you know you have to be online randomly whenever the the game sees fit um whether it be you know every 10 minutes or you know maybe it's 10 days or you know half a year from now but at some point you're gonna have to be online and it's not gonna let you know when online connection like you said could be an issue for people um not only that, it it eats up your system bandwidth. Like that, at some point, some of the people that are playing games, they're not all gonna have the the thirty, ninety, and sixty four gigs of RAM, and you know, in all all this extra overhead to play with. So some of that's gonna be important for them to not be communicating online in order to get that extra performance just so they can play the game in an offline state. Yeah, and it still comes back to like what we've talked about in previous episodes about being online only now too, is where if you don't have the ability to perform that check-in on a regular basis or it's it's like I don't have a calendar reminder to go and do that, it's like, oh, crap, mm-hmm. my game is now unable to connect, and I can't connect to the internet because of this. It's it's just one of those problems that we run into, you know, especially, like, I don't know if there's actually a timer here, like for Denuvo, for example, that says, uh, you know, how long it actually takes in between. I, I don't think they ever actually did do state. And, you know, it it's kind of weird that, game companies would just assume that you know even if it's a game that you purchased offline uh say for for the xbox or the playstation in specific that that you're gonna have to check in online that you're gonna have to patch the game i mean it does kind of go back to the nostalgic way of thinking that games should be complete when they you're you know come out the gate but i guess at the same sense down the line, even the publisher and developers want to make sure that people are are playing official copies of the games that they make in one way or another if they're using an official console. So that that's one aspect of it. But uh, for for a, one aspect of the game to be so aggressive on your system and eat up so much of of the uh, potential processing power and the fact that you know it may make the game unplayable just because a a lack of connection or poor connection at the time it's it just it's bizarre yeah and that's why i figured that we would have been past you know or, or that a lot of this stuff would have been realized by now especially in the finickiness of of internet connectivity in some spots and then of course the reliance on individual like data centers especially like with all the outages like amazon had at aws uh late last year you know that caused havoc for a lot of other things too but 
you know, it's kind of like putting all your eggs into one basket, really. Right. But it has led Credence to an interesting development on the Xbox side of things. Yeah, let's talk about where... that, and then we can get into the Xbox issue, too. Yeah. Um, so, with the Xbox Series X, or Series S, excuse me, um, actually, um, numbers from Fumitsu uh, recently announced that the Xbox as a system collective has actually sold more units in Japan than the PlayStation 5. Now, granted, it is a lot more S's than than um, either of the uh, PlayStation 5 digital or disc units, and the Series X is below both the digital uh, and disc units of the PlayStation 5. Oh, yeah. But overall, Microsoft has sold more. And now Microsoft is looking at the potential of adding an an outboard disc to the uh, the unit, so you'd be able to just go buy an external disc tray, plug it into the system, and use physical copies of the games that you buy. But on the other flip side of that, potentially take those physical discs to a place like GameStop, Target, Walmart, or Best Buy, and swap that disc for an all digital code that you just throw into your console and download the uh, game itself and then you don't have to worry about the physical media see and that's an interesting thing that kind of takes me back a little bit to the days of your where it's like with demo stuff where it's like you'd have the one cartridge you can go into like a blockbuster and write the game to a cartridge or something they weren't like Mm -hmm. big games either uh but the idea though of of that especially that's really interesting to hear especially about japan with the xbox anyway because they've Xbox has always had such a hard time with penetration into the Japanese market when it comes to actual um, console selling anyway. I mean, they do a big, big push on marketing, but there's just never really been that much success. But even with that, um, you are right, though, is that it's not even just Japan, but the entire world is actually seeing more adoption of the Series S than the X because of its price point. And the fact, though, that you're able to, yeah, availability and the fact, though, that you're, you know, you're actually getting a pretty decent console there, especially like at 1440p output, you know, you can get up to, you know, between 60, 120 FPS, Um, you can stream in 4K on it if you have any of the 4K subscriptions, there's all that too. Granted, the, the hard drive space is smaller. And how many people are actually playing games on a 4K TV anyway? A lot of people that are actually playing the game side of Xboxes. And granted, there is a large adult audience, but most of them are going to be kids in in their bedrooms. I don't know a lot of kids with, you know, 4K TVs in their bedrooms. Uh, No, me either. And yeah, I can confirm my kids are not like that either. So... Right. Even even with that though, yeah, you're right. Is that it's it's why like what are you going to be gaining by being able to have a console that can put out 4K other than oh it just it it scales better, you know, to those larger TVs. But uh, even so right. is that Microsoft even put it out in their sales numbers that uh, I believe it was late last year that they saw better attachment of Xbox Game Pass Ultimate to Xbox Series S consoles than they did Series X because of the added value, but of course, given that it's you're forced to be digital. But the idea of adding right. a CD drive though to it is a very interesting. I hate to say CD, it's not CD. It's a it's a I'll just say disc drive because that's what it should be because it's going to be Blu-ray. 
hell, it'll be a, it'll be a zip disk is what it is. You'll have to do a floppy or something there, you know, <laughs> instead too. Um, right, punch that'd, cards. That'd be funny. You have to feed it like it, ten thousand punch cards. I I think it's kind of funny because I mean you're you're not obviously going to be able to trade the the digital version for the disc version. If you have the digital version, you're gonna just be bolstering your collection with another copy uh, of the same game if you went out and bought the disc version after buying your external uh, disc drive. But to the same effect, I mean, at one point at GameStop, we actually had a uh, manager's phone meeting uh, about, you know, the potential of going disc to digital and what, what it would take for the store to be able to take in copies of the games to sell di- digital versions and really at that time without you know a, a big console backing it, it it was it was a difficult idea because there was a lot of games that you would sell in store for you know 15 20 to 25 dollars and they're still going for you know 40 to to 60 dollars online yeah it's a very interesting trade-off when it comes to that like that potential option if if any of this actually even does come and, to fruition but i mean at least gamestop was yeah, planning part of for it's it it's the publisher part of it's the you know the the developer and part of it's just microsoft but mm-hmm. at the end of the day you're right yeah <laughs> and i mean this this harkens back like we talked about the xbox one and the idea that you're gonna be always connected in that too and and even this article here from videogameschronicle.com that talks about the patent as well even says on the surface the patent could be reminiscent of canceled pre-launch plans for xbox one owners to be able to install their disc games as full digital apps which before microsoft you turned on the idea would have been watermarked to their owner so yeah it is kind of like an interesting uh 180 here for them to kind of go back to what this could be but again them getting the patent doesn't mean anything is going to happen i mean apple sits on a whole mess of them and people tear those apart thinking oh apple's going to make this apple's going to make that most likely not going to be the case it's just to protect an idea and and video game companies uh especially uh console development companies uh, put out lots of patents every day, every day that never come oh, yeah. to fruition. It's just that they want the rights to those ideas. If the thought ever, you know, arises or you know the need ever arises for that particular product, absolutely, absolutely. That that's the whole reason behind that is that it doesn't mean that the idea is going to be generated and created right off the bat. It's going to be you know or come to fruition as a actual physical tangible thing. It's one of those things where someone had a decent idea, the company saw value in that idea and decided to go ahead and make sure that they could stick their name to it. So if someone else tried to do it, it's like, no, it was our first. You know, it's again, capitalism. But anyway, um, even with a a lot of that, though, and, and of course, as it relates to DRM, because that is an interesting one because of, you know, owning all these digital titles and, you know, they are yours now, but... Getting rid of them, of course, though, or, or reselling them. Um, you know, I, I hate to make comments on NFTs, but you never know what's going to happen anymore. But even with... Well, it it kind of came up in that discussion, you know, of, hmm. of bringing discs in and selling out the, the digital copies that could users potentially come and, you know, sell us their digital things. And, you know, I, I, had, I had thrown around an idea that, yes, it is possible. I mean, it, 
you, you think about it, we have third part, we have the third party authenticators that we use through Google. So there would potentially be a way as long as you could authenticate their their profile in the store and then use a third party authenticator application or service to authenticate the actual acquisition and trade of the, that digital license. Yeah, there, there's got to be something that that adapts but to that. Yeah, it, there, there's a lot to facilitate uh, digital license trade and acquisition. I would think so. Kind of gets yeah. muddled. Oh, it does. Uh, until we start seeing more unified environments and unified standards when it comes to some things, you know, we're we're not going to really see a lot of that interoperability happening. But anyway, so we've talked about that a little bit at least, you know, ju- just as kind of the idea there and how Microsoft seems to think that, you know, or at least based on that patent because it was filed in 2018, which was years after the announcement of the series or not Series X, the uh, original Xbox 1. Uh but what I want to really think about though is kind of like where we're going with DRM anyway here towards the future because we had the outage with like Gran Turismo 7 and yes paying $70 for a game and not being able to play it because the online component was down where you couldn't authenticate with it we had the Xbox outage where games that were even downloaded and installed to the Xbox couldn't play because they required more stringent check-ins for for their DRM itself with the like light really being put out there on DRM anyway, and how these companies are actively pursuing these different things, especially continuing to repeat the same problem with using DeNuvo uh, mm-hmm. and all of the problems that we have seen with it. What do you think could be a way to solve this issue with DRM that, not only protects the IP for the publisher and the developer, but also protects the consumer. So that way they aren't being left in the dust or, or left to wonder what other games they can play because this thing is down now, you know, let them actually have more ownership of that title and allow them to enjoy it without these problems coming up. Um, I, I, I think maybe a little bit looser DRM, similar to how Sony's is set up, uh, where it doesn't necessarily need to check in all the time. Or maybe even like Steam's, where you only have to have a check-in every 30 days or so for for a game to actually function. On the other side, though, maybe a smarter thing would be a third-party authenticator app. Similar to like you, you have your Google Authenticator to a- authenticate applications. Why can't we have something like that for video games? Your your console is tied via serial number to your Authenticator app that can call out via cellular, get the data, and then you know you you can Bluetooth it to your console, or you can just manually enter in the data. But it's going to be a timed thing, just like on the Google Authenticator app. Or, you know, other, I think there's a couple uh, uh, other authenticators that are out there. But it, it's, you know, a thought on, on one way to do it. Just, you know, in order to be able to play an offline game that you've purchased, you know, via an online method. Especially for those people that have data caps. Or, you know, may be limited to, to 
crummy internet only you know having good internet at certain times of the day or even certain times of the year if you live in you know the arctic circle because that that's not unheard of either there are people that that require internet in in odd places that you know it it it's crap at some times of the year because of the earth no and that's uh, you know what that was actually i know you had made mention of the authenticator a little earlier there but that's such an interesting idea. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you on the first part is, you know, short-term change. I, I think that using the term, like, you know, making it looser is definitely not maybe the right approach to go necessarily. Maybe but it's more the, yeah. but the, the timer part, though, changing the actual timer to be less aggressive. Um, right. I like the idea of, a, of an MFA authenticator, a multi-faction, or it's basically like saying ATM machine, uh, multi-factor authentication as it relates to the, the security of the game anyway, that if you, like, we'll use the, the title that we play a lot anyway, too, at least, you know, with the new season, Halo Infinite, where if we go to boot up Halo Infinite on our machine, you know, we get a request to play it on, you know, through the Xbox app or something on our phone. Like, are you booting this up on your console right now? And you can just simply hit yes on there really quick, you know, mm-hmm. and, and for those who maybe I know there are still a lot of people out there who can't afford a smartphone or anything, but it'll be tied into your Microsoft account. You can get a text message just to confirm such, too. And you might have well, believe to believe it or not. Microsoft is actually working on a system to try and do away with passwords um, for most things. Yeah. All you have to have is your cell phone because you have it all the time. Right. And that's that's a very interesting way to actually approach it, though, too, especially like what Google does, where sometimes when you sign in from an unknown location, it's like, here is the, the code number we sent your phone. Does this code mm-hmm. number match what you see on the screen? Of course, it's usually like a, just a quick two-digit number in a midst of like three or four but you have to pick the right one to at least authenticate it. And for a console with right. the with the um, controller in that anyway, it might be easier to have something like that versus having to type in a six to eight digit uh, multi-factor authentication number. But that's a that's an mm-hmm. interesting idea on how to handle it. And I could see that even being the case too, especially with Microsoft's push with uh, with Windows Hello on uh, Windows 10 and of course now Windows 11. The other thing though, and this is more reliant on the console developers themselves or, or the console manufacturers, excuse me, to work on this themselves is the potential introduction of hardware based DRM again. And where I look at that is that it can be in two different ways. One, you could look at the potential introduction of the TPM module. Can I'm doing it again. It's, it's just trusted protection module, right? Because we talked about that at one trusted point. Trusted platform. Trusted platform. See, I did it again. But even though <laughs> saying trusted platform module, module. Yeah, so the trusted platform module, which is built into, I don't even think it's a separate chip. I think it's actually built into the CPUs uh, from Intel no, it, and AMD. Or is it a separate chip? It's actually on your motherboard, if I'm not mistaken. And oh, actually, okay. it's not built into all motherboards. Um, you can buy motherboards without the, the TPM. Um, my my motherboard actually does not have a TPM on it. Um, I, oh, I have okay. to buy the. Uh, I think it's a fourteen dollar module to plug in. But yeah, you can plug it into all motherboards. Well, first off, that's a little bit annoying. But okay, uh, yeah, but it's dumb. Yeah. So what I'm thinking though is that it's like hardware based on there by using the trusted platform module um, and authenticating through that. 
or and or you know you can tie these together potentially is you know like for both Microsoft and Sony I I know there have been previous efforts or at least previous actions that have been done to be able to get into the system partitions on the internal drives uh, and have figured, you know, people have figured out a way to reverse engineer that data. So say like your drive dies, you can duplicate all that over to the new drive without losing anything mm-hmm. um, using, you know, existing like uh, disk duplication tools like that, that physical hard drive um, plugin that you can just use to go right to your computer to get to the other one. Um, but maybe some sort of just like secure partition that has that DRM built into it. And whether that comes from, you know, you putting the disc into your console and it does that initial communication out and then in tandem with that timer, it just stores that key right then and there. So even if you don't have the disc in your, uh, console, you still got the authentication to be able to do it. And then maybe every couple months you do need to throw the disc in just to authenticate really quick too. You know, everything's right. right there and it refreshes, but it still needs just that physical check again after a little while to make sure all is good. You know, and, and yeah. that that still even carries over if you go buy another copy of the disc. Like, let's say um, my kids break my copy of Modern Warfare for the Xbox. You know, like the disc is snapped in half. I can't do anything about it. That doesn't necessarily impact my ability to play the game. I have to go buy another disc, but it allows me at least to authenticate still no matter what and be able to still continue doing it or have some sort of trade-in repair thing that you can send it in and it's like okay microsoft here's my disc and they can send you the you know they can go into your account and and flag it and say okay we're converting this to digital now instead and now it's authenticated and everything's good and it doesn't require the hardware based check-in at least by putting a disc in you know well and that's that, another that function almost goes into a yeah and that that almost goes into a whole e-waste thing as well at that point you know broken discs and you know convert conversion of you know physical material into digital i mean there's something to be had there that microsoft isn't is i think missing uh or maybe they're not but there's another step that that could be had to make to make money off of for microsoft yeah and that's probably one of those things that is easy enough to adapt to i mean it really does kind of come back full circle to having that always on drm connectivity but in tandem with timer changes and how you're holding on to that data and how long that data is good for and the rest of your authentication checks i mean we've had hardware changes in these systems where things run much faster where things run much more robust and don't take a very long time to process things why can't that also be applied though internally hardware based to be able to authenticate it you know you've got your you've got your tpm installed you've got your disk in you've got the game installed now onto your um internal drive or if you use an external drive it's all there and through the whole chain of of ownership there it authenticates and goes you know there's no problem otherwise you know you might end up getting into one of those weird situations where like there's some professional software out there where you you don't use a cd <coughs> but you use a USB, uh, USB drive instead mm-hmm. that has your key in it, and you have to. You can launch yeah. the software, but you have to plug it in to actually do anything with the software. Well, there's there's a lot of uh, government software that actually requires you to have like a USB key that um, has to update and generate new keys every so often 
that you carry the key with you all the time. Yeah, and I mean that's the same like with uh, you know, with these authentication keys you can get for yourself, the the Titan keys, the Yubi keys that yeah. you can then have all your um, authentication on. So you plug it into whatever computer you go to and everything's right there with you, but it's secure where nobody can reverse engineer that stuff. Exactly. There are options to be able to make this stuff work. It just feels like it's more of a of a cop-out. And that's where I want to get into these final words, though, anyway, because we just talked about some potential solutions there. But in the final words, at least I want to say, is that is DRM necessary in these games from a corporate standpoint to protect IP and to get people to buy the games instead of pirating them? Obviously, yes, DRM is going to need to be there in some way so people aren't just copying the game and sharing it with everybody out there. You know, that that's kind of a given. Does it need to be as invasive as it is and cause performance issues um, or not update in enough time uh, or within enough of a rotation that you can go down at any second? Mm, no, it doesn't really need to be that way. It means that it was just probably some cheap engineering. But does DRM need to really have that online connection going forward? And I don't necessarily think so. I think that the technology has evolved enough over console generations and computer, just the evolution in computer hardware has allowed it so that way it's something that isn't even necessary. And like you said, Kyle, the authenticator option is a great idea. Um, incorporate it with hardware-based solutions that can take the robustness of our existing hardware now and make it so that way it's it's hardly noticeable to the end user but things have to change though otherwise the end user the gamer is going to continue to suffer and we're going to see more attempts at breaking drm and piracy going forward definitely i i think uh console developers uh need to definitely look more into uh and it, it sounds like it, it might be a whole nother aspect, but cybersecurity uh, in order to bolster their hardware security as well. Um, and that would, in turn, bolstering the hardware security, make it easier for DRM on the end user. Yeah, because I don't want us to get back to the point of, you know, doing a CD key is easy, but... Imagine typing in a 16-digit code every time you want to play a game on your Xbox. Right. Blech. I'm good without that. Thank no, you. No, thanks. No. No, thanks. But that is it for this week's NPCs Discuss, where we talk about the grasp of DRM. With that, of course, thank you so much, everybody, for tuning into this week's episode. Of course, if you are listening to us, you really do like us, I think. Right? Yeah? Right? Yeah? Yeah, you... I think so. Yeah, they like us. So... If you do, if you do like listening uh, to us talk about these different gaming topics, of course, be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform of choice. You might even be doing that right now, so thank you so much for doing that. If you're not, go find out what platforms we're available on. You know what? I'll just tell you anyway. We're on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn. Uh, God, we're all over the place. Go and find us and go and subscribe to us there on your favorite podcast platform of choice, or follow us on our homepage over at anchor.fm slash the-mcs-podcast. Of course, be sure to check us out on social media as well and on YouTube as well over at the NPCs podcast. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. We will catch you all next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>